This is John Quinn, and today on Law Disrupted, we're speaking with Luke Nikas, who, with Marin Shaw, is co-head of the art practice at our law firm, the Quinn Emanuel Law Firm. Luke is based in New York, and so far as I know, and I'm I'm actually pretty certain about this, Luke has developed the premier arts disputes practice in the world. So it's a fun practice. It's an interesting practice, and Luke is going to talk to us today about how we should think about art and law and art disputes generally. And let me begin by asking you, Luke, I mean, really, is there such a thing as art law? I remember, you know, as a summer associate, I went to work for a, a law firm in Los Angeles. I thought I was interested in entertainment law. And I remember sitting down with the senior and partner in charge of the entertainment practice and asking him the question, is there such a thing as entertainment law? It was a long, interesting discussion. What would your answer be to that as it relates to art law? The answer is, in a very limited way, there is such a thing as art law. But for the most part, art law is just a composite of any other area of law that might apply to a situation. It's fraud, it's RICO, sometimes it's statutory, the, the Uniform Commercial Code. Uh, most art cases revolve around areas that have nothing to do with art, were not created to deal with an art dispute, which raises its own challenges, and only in a really small subset like under the New York Arts and Cultural Affairs laws, you know, are there actually art laws that are designed to protect artists or other people in the business? I mean, that's very interesting. And I, I would have guessed that would have been your answer, that most art law cases, most art law disputes probably present themselves as contract disputes or intellectual property disputes, copyright disputes, agency disputes and the like. But I would think there are some statutes, particular statutes, and probably also from time to time in the business, there's a custom and practice which may come into play, especially as it relates to the market for arts and dealings with agents and the like. I mean, do you ever encounter sort of custom issues? Like what's what's the accepted role in this business of particular players? The customs and practices in our cases are, are probably the most important areas to explore and think about when you're litigating a case, or if you never want to be involved in a case, to think about if you're a dealer, if you're a collector, what you're doing every day in the business. Because in the art world, there's a whole language that certain people use to talk about, for example, authenticity. That's, a, I think, the best example to start with. If you are an expert, and you are looking at an artwork and you've been asked to give your view about the work's authenticity, many experts are scared of saying anything about authenticity. If they say it's right and turn out to be wrong about it. They get sued. If they say it's wrong and they turn out to be right about it, they still get sued. Uh, right. It doesn't matter. So or if they refuse, if they refuse to say anything, if they're the official authentication organization that's been set up for a now deceased artist, and they refuse to give an opinion, isn't that potentially a, a problem as well? They've, they've been sued before. You're, you're in control of the marketplace. You're refusing to express any view whatsoever. You're using other channels to control pricing. I've seen antitrust allegations related to that kind of practice. 
And so when you actually look at what experts say, there's a whole language about authenticity that they'll use in order to try to avoid these problems. It usually doesn't, but if an expert says a work is right, that's an indication it's authentic, but they won't say they're giving an opinion about authenticity. They won't say it's my view this work is authentic. They may even say this work is by the hand of the artist. And, and if you ask them, well, don't you mean that it's an authentic work? And they say, no, no, no I don't give opinions about authenticity. That's so, interesting that, that, that opining using that word uh, has implications in this market and getting back to the custom that we started talking about that may be liability generating and it's it's people try to steer clear of that if they can. Yes, and then circle back to an art dealer. An art dealer sells a work on the basis that one of the premier experts said it was right. And then it turns out it's not right and the art dealer gets sued. Now the art dealer has to be able to say, I vetted the work, I got an opinion. And then the expert's going to say, well, I don't give opinions about authenticity at all. And, and this dealer didn't get one from me. But then the dealer has to rely on the custom and practice of the industry to say, I understood this language, the language that the work was right or by the hand of to mean that the work was by the artist and authentic. And therefore I was able to sell it honestly. So these customs and practices, you know, this is just the start of it, really define what people can do, should be doing in order to ultimately engage in this space. And these issues come up all the time in litigation. I would assume that uh, if a uh, gallerist gets a piece of art by a, purportedly by a well-known artist, but the provenance is is unclear, uh, it's and I know you were involved in a famous case involving a, a New York gallery, and actually it became a litigation and criminal case and a, and a film that you were involved in. I would assume in that circumstance, uh, it really behooves the collector to get an opinion of some kind, you know, supporting the authenticity or what use what words you will, or otherwise, if the gallerist offers that to the public saying it's by that artist, they're really at risk. That is definitely true in good practice. The question has become in light of cases like that one, where experts get dragged into court, into depositions, have to give testimony, is who do you go to? What kind of opinion can you actually get? What opinion ought you get? And so if I call up a well-known expert and artist, I'm likely to be told, I'm not going to talk to you about authenticity. I'm not going to give you my opinion. They may write an essay for an auction house if it's already been vetted, a sort of scholarly work about the art, but unlikely to get an opinion. So if you can't get an expert, then who do you go to? You go to the artist's estates, and say, I would like an opinion from you about authenticity. Many of them won't give you one. They'll say, check the catalog resume or the official book that we've put out of the artist's works. Well, if it's not in the catalog resume because that volume hasn't come out yet or they haven't published it at all yet, then you're stuck there. And then you can go to a forensic scientist, but those are dwindling in number. And the forensics don't give you conclusive proof that a work is by the artist. Sometimes they can just generally date the work, which isn't good enough uh, for many of the works that come through the, the market. And so you're left with very little to rely upon other than your own eye and trusting the person you sourced the work from in the first place. 
Talk to us a little bit about that case that you were involved in that we both alluded to now. I saw the movie and I saw the articles. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So the Nodler Art Gallery was one of the most prominent art galleries in the world uh, at the time the case was filed in the 2012-11 time period. It was founded in the 1800s. It was really the gallery that introduced art to New York City, had the Rockefellers as clients and so forth. And so Nodler Gallery in the early 90s was approached by a woman named Glafira Rosales, who said that she had a connection to a family friend who owned a magnificent collection of art by famous abstract expressionist artists like Jackson Pollock, Franz Klein, Mark Rothko. Over the course of the early 90s through mid-2000s, Nodler Gallery sold a few dozen of these works that came through the gallery by Glafira Rosales. The gallery had shown these works to numerous experts, uh, some of whom said the works were right, some of whom wrote letters uh, saying that they believed the works were authentic. They were exhibited in museums. They were sold, some of them, through major auction houses. And it turns out that they had not been painted by Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko or the famous abstract expressionists, but instead had been painted by a man in his garage in Queens in the early 1990s, who they found painting portraits on the street in New York City uh, downtown. And so the gallery was sued for fraud and racketeering. Uh, my client, who was the president of the gallery, was also sued uh, related to those cases or those sales. There were 10 cases pending, plus a parallel criminal investigation that uh, went on for several years. Well, in that case, the, the woman who was running the gallery, I guess, on a day-to-day -day basis, not your client, you know, seemingly did what you would think a responsible gallerist would did. She tried to get and did get expert opinions supporting authenticity for these pieces, didn't she? The president did. She went to uh, two people that she brought on staff. One of them was the former a head curator at the National Gallery of Art in DC, uh, you know, our nation's art museum. The other was uh, a art professor, had a PhD, was at the Smithsonian for a time during his career. And both of them vetted every work, said they believed in the authenticity of the work, put it in writing. And then the president went around and showed these works to numerous individuals, experts. They were exhibited publicly. And so ultimately, what became very complicated is that even experts who put in writing that they thought the works were right or that they were experts in the work and they knew what they were looking at and they had no doubts, they said they didn't give opinions as to authenticity. They never would do that. They should Their, their words should not be read as vetting or authenticating the works. And they backtracked, every single one of them, with mm -hmm. very few exceptions. And so amazing. I mean, so, I mean, you really have to scrut. What's the lesson here? You really have to scrutinize the words used by the expert, or are we just always going to assume our expert's going to run for the hills whenever some evidence turns up that there may be an authenticity issue? The, the lesson is the latter. The lesson is you really need to protect yourself in this business. You need to make sure that if you are going to sell something and there's any question about it whatsoever, if it doesn't come with a picture uh, of the artist standing next to it, if it's not in the catalog resume of the artist, 
if it hasn't been sent to you with verified invoices that start with the artist's studio and lead to your current buyer, if there's any gap whatsoever, which is common, then you need to think about protecting yourself from the risk down the road that you get sued on the basis the work isn't right. If you can get something in writing, get it in writing. If you can get as many people to look at it as possible and you send them an email to confirm that they've looked at it, that's helpful. Anything that you can create contemporaneously to show good faith, critical. It's interesting in this case, because this, the person who showed up saying, I have this marvelous collection of uh, abstract expressionist paintings. I think it started with the Pollock paintings. But over time, the same person said, had a number of modern masters. I forget who the others were. It, it was uh, Mark Rothko, Franz Klein, Clifford Still, uh, Richard Diebenkorn. I'm thinking if I'm the gallerist, uh, and I realize you're involved in the litigation and there's probably limits on what you can say. If this person, a person like this starts showing up and first it's Pollock and then it's these other famous artists and all these paintings, which they're, they're not, none of them are in the cat catalog raisonnés. I mean, alarm bells are going off in my head at this point about... What, you know, can this possibly be real? What am I seeing here? And the interesting thing is that those questions were raised early on and the experts who looked at the works flipped that in the other direction. And so one of the experts said, and this was also confirmed by another expert who wasn't on the payroll even at the gallery, said, I've looked at all these works. I've looked at the Rothkos and the Stills and the Kleins and the Lee Krasner and the Pollocks. And I, I get it, there are a lot of works here, but these works are so convincing visually, so convincing and so different in their technique that I cannot imagine someone with the skill to create all of these in such a convincing way we're either dealing with a master forger of epic proportion, never before seen, or they're authentic. Or they're authentic. And so the fact that this raised questions was actually used in the mm. other direction to right. authenticity. And it, and it turns out that the latter turned out to be true. It apparently was a, a master forger who, by the time of the trial, had uh, gone back to his homeland in China uh, and was not available to testify or answer questions. <laughs> not available, escaped justice. Uh, he found his way back to China uh, as soon as he understood that the door was closing on him. So, Well, I, I don't want to spend this whole pad, podcast on issues of authenticity, but I know that you've also been involved, you've represented, as I recall, the Andy Warhol Foundation, which at least for some period of time, was uh, passing on the authenticity of works. And I understand that they changed their policy. They, they did about 10 years ago. Uh, there were numerous litigations. Uh, they were successful. We were successful in all of them. Uh, but ultimately, you know, foundations need to make choices. And just like artist estates need to make choices, they need to decide you know, what kind of foundation, what kind of artist estate do they want to be? Do they want to be a foundation that's involved in authenticating works, keeping the market clean, uh, facilitating honest transactions? Do they wanna be involved in scholarship about the artist? Do they wanna be involved in grant making to support the visual arts? And what I tell clients is before you jump in to authentication, 
before you publish a catalog resume, before you do anything, think about what your blueprint is. Think about how you're trying to help. Think about how you're carrying on the artist's vision uh, after the artist is gone. And if it is authentication, if you think market clarity is important, then here are the risks of it and set yourself up to do it right. But if you don't think that's what the artist would have wanted, or that's not a path you think is worth using the limited resources you have, then don't do it at all, period, full stop. Turn somewhere else and focus on what good you think you should do and can do with the resources and the branding and the legacy that you have and do that. And a lot of art foundations follow that advice. One final question on authenticity. If a in the provenance of a work, if there's been a sale at Christie's or Sotheby's or one of the other major auction houses, is that kind of a, a seal of approval? I mean, is that a, a is that something that you can really rely on? That you we know that those institutions do vet the works they offer for sale to the public, and that's going to be a pretty good sign that it's authentic. It, it's a very good sign. Everyone makes mistakes. Uh, art authentication is objective. It either is by the artist or it isn't. But the, a lot of the process that you undertake to get there, you know, looking at the work visually, studying the artist's brushstrokes, studying the signature, the materials, a lot of that comes down to subjective judgment. And so people will make mistakes in this area, including auction houses. But my view is if it's at an auction house and it's one of the top reputable auction houses, more likely than not, it's authentic and you can trust it. And auction houses, because they do considerable diligence before selling works, they give you more often than not an extended statute of limitations on the, on the warranty claims of authenticity because they stand behind what they sell. Another area where I know we see disputes in the art world uh, relates to finance, hypothecation, collateralization, I mean, the contemporary art world, the values over the last 20 years have gone up so extraordinarily. I mean, we're talking about objects that sell for tens of millions, in rare cases, hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, they are pledged, they are repledged. Uh, there are complex financial arrangements, even relating to sales at auctions, uh, we know, uh, where there are reserve prices and there are things that you hear about that are done in the bidding that, you know, to support a price. Uh, and then we see claims coming out of situations like that. It's sort of art finance claims. It, it's a it's a really unique uh, development in the art world. If you go back you know, 100 years, people were putting artworks on their walls to enjoy them. They were transacting, transacting in them. You know, certainly there was a, a business component, but it was really about the experience of of collecting and having you know, artwork on your walls supporting artists. O over the past 15 years or so, the art market has really gone through the roof in terms of pricing. If you look at, for example, the year 2000 for the abstract expressionist market, and you look at the index for pricing, and then you fast forward six or seven years, you see a five, six, 700% increase in some of the pricing of those, of those artists in that category. And so what people have realized is that art isn't just something to enjoy. It, it's an asset that you can use to collateralize deals. You can use it as a premise for a business. 
And so what's happened is art has become the asset, the subject matter of complex financial instruments, just like mortgages were back in the residential mortgage-backed securities markets. And what that means is that a, you've got authentication problems. Is the actual financial instrument backed by something of value? Question mark. If the diligence isn't done right, and then when the instrument's sold, sometimes the collateral gets sold to someone else. Someone uses one work of art to back one instrument, and then sells the artwork to someone else, and then leases it back, if you will, or consigns it back. Uses the underlying art as an asset to get a loan from someone, give me $300,000, I'll pledge this artwork. And then the deck of cards all falls and you've got one work of art with multiple good faith people who acted in good faith, acted honestly, all having a claim to the one object. And it's a zero sum game. They're all out money. They're all looking to recover through one artwork that you can't divide in three ways. But doesn't the UCC have an answer to this? I mean, people have ways of protecting their interests in situations like that. The UCC has answers and they're complicated. So for example, we dealt with a case where an art finance company lent a significant amount of money to an art dealer who then pledged a work of art as collateral. The dealer defaulted on the loan and therefore our client claimed default and took possession, excuse me, took ownership, not possession, ownership of the artwork. It turned out that that artwork had been taken on consignment from the original owners, had been sold to one particular person two times. That other particular person who had bought it had paid for it and then transferred it. But then on the second transaction, transferred the work to the dealer running the scheme, but it was never paid. So he was out the artwork and the money. And so all three of them sued. And the basic principle normally is if an art gallery takes something on consignment, then they can sell it. It's an art gallery and you're allowed to rely on that. Even when the original consigner had a contract with the gallery that said they weren't allowed to sell it. So they were claiming breach. The second party was claiming it owned title. And we were claiming that because the art gallery sold it in an intermediate transaction with the other party, it had cleared the title and had the right to sell to us. And we ended up winning on a motion to dismiss on this highly technical ground to the point where the, the assistant US attorney came into the judge and said, it just can't be the law. This doesn't make sense, judge. And the judge said, I think Mr. Nickus is reading this language correctly. So everyone was caught by surprise in that case. The bankruptcy trustee couldn't believe that we had the arguments we were making. The assistant US attorney couldn't believe we had the arguments we were making. They both filed motions to dismiss and teamed up on us. The consignors couldn't believe we had the arguments we were making. They teamed up on us and the court denied all their motions. And so the lesson here is yes, the UCC has answers, but it's highly, highly technical. There are areas, caveats, loopholes, and you really have to run through what the transaction points were start to finish to figure out how the UCC actually applies. And sometimes there are counterintuitive results. So you really got to protect yourself at the beginning because it's not as clear as you might think it is. I mean, just to add another layer of complexity, we know players in the art market 
who are trying to market, sell, fractionalize interests in extremely valuable works of art. Not everybody can afford 30 or 40, 50 million dollars for a painting uh, that they love and they think is going to appreciate in value. But there are opportunities now to seemingly acquire a fractionalized, undivided interest in a work of art. And one of the issues that raises is, is that a security? Under the Securities Act of 1933, does that need to be, does that offering or prospectus have to be registered with the SEC? You talk about the, the sort of uh, change from the concept of art to something that you hang on a wall and enjoy to something that's an uh, object of complicated financial instruments. I met a, a person who runs a company in New York who is trying to deal with both sides of that, that he's selling fractionalized interest in art, but he also has the idea to have a kind of a dining room where these paintings will hang on the wall. And if you're an owner of a fractionalized interest, you can go and have a dinner there, invite your friends, and have everybody enjoy this painting that's on the wall that you have a fractionalized interest in. It's a really novel idea. There, there are some others thinking about doing something similar where you actually can take possession of artworks that are within the pool if you have a, have a significant fractionalized interest in the pool. It, it's, it's a desire to really bring collectors into the space who appreciate the art and aren't just looking for the financial return. And that interestingly on the securities front might have some benefit because if you are completely unsophisticated in art, don't understand the customs and practices, don't speak the language, don't have an advisor, and you're simply investing because you look at the index of pricing and you wanna jump on the upward trend, you might later on claim, I had no idea this is what the lingo was. I had no idea that this diligence needed to be conducted. I wasn't told properly all of the steps that they took, that they didn't take. I wasn't advised about material facts related to the art that I now understand. And as an unsophisticated investor in this space, I have protections legally that a sophisticated investor wouldn't. But if you can bring in people who actually understand the art, appreciate the art, are involved in this market in a considerable way, then you might reduce some of those risks that are associated with the disclosure requirements. Another area where I know we see a lot of disputes relates to intellectual property issues, copyright issues, trademark issues. I know there's a case that you were involved in that I think the United States Supreme Court is going to hear this term relating to a photograph of the musical artist Prince. Could you talk to us a little bit about that very interesting case? Andy Warhol is, uh, in my view, uh, one of the most important, if not the most important artist of the 20th century in terms of changing our expectations about what art is, how to depict celebrity photographs and celebrities and everyday objects like Campbell soup cans, uh, Elvis Presley. And ultimately he adopted uh, a whole new method of creating art and communicating about celebrity culture and advertising. And so in the early 1980s, a photographer took a photograph of the music artist Prince. Uh, a few years later, a Vanity Fair wanted to publish an article about Prince's rising fame. 
and reached out to Warhol and asked if he would do uh, artwork uh, that could accompany the article. So Warhol was given a photograph of Prince. Uh, we don't know how he got it. We don't know what terms accompanied it. All of that is uh, in, in the, the dustbin of history. We don't know what, what actually happened, but he created 16 works uh, depicting Prince in his Warhol style. The silk screen, you know, sharp contrast, the blacks become really black, the grays and lights sort of disappear, uh, exotic colors, uh, multiple line screens. So Prince is sort of set off uh, his, his face one after another. He did what Warhol does with celebrity imagery. And one of those works accompanied the article. Fast forward, Prince dies you know, five, six years ago, and um, another magazine wanted to print a commemorative edition uh, related to Prince's life, commemorating all the success he had, the impact on music, and they wanted to use a Warhol to uh, grace the cover of this commemorative edition magazine. The Warhol Foundation uh, granted the license and the photographer then reached out after seeing it and said, Warhol infringed my photograph. I took the photograph, Warhol infringed it. And so uh, we filed a declaratory judgment action seeking a declaration that it was not infringement, that it was protected use, a fair use uh, at a minimum. And the test there was something whether there was sufficient Warhol had sufficiently transformed the photograph to make it his unique Warhol creative work. It, exactly. In, in essence, we argued uh, this was classic Warhol. Uh, this was his own signature style. He transformed the underlying image. All of the elements of the photograph that courts protect, the lighting, the shading, the perspective, the angle, all of those things from the original photograph, Warhol changed. Uh, he, he created different shadows. So Prince's face wasn't angular, it was more straight on. Uh, he changed the lighting and the shading. He changed the color. Uh, he did everything that he does to the work and ultimately changed every original decision the photographer made, we argued to the court, and also explained that in doing that, Warhol not only transformed the visual image, but was communicating about prints, about society's use of celebrity imagery. And this is consistent with his overall message. And therefore he transformed the message about the work as well. Uh, it was a different market, we explained. Warhol's works depicting prints were in a very different marketplace. And so we, we ultimately were successful in the district court. Uh, the district court ruled that it didn't even need to consider our experts. We had market experts, we had experts in Warhol's work uh, explaining the transformation. Uh, we had everything that you'd need in a case like this in expert testimony to support our case. The district court said, we don't even need to get there. I'm ruling for the foundation. That was similar to the Second Circuit's ruling in the Prince versus Carew case, uh, this time Prince the artist, not the musician, where the Second Circuit said Prince had transformed the underlying images that a photographer named Carew had taken when Prince used his signature approach to art, transforming the message, the meaning, and sold them in a different marketplace. So the district court did exactly what the circuit court had done in the Prince versus Carew case. And interestingly, in the district court in the Prince versus Carew case, that court rejected Prince's arguments and found infringement. And so in the Second Circuit, the Second Circuit did exactly the opposite of what it did in the Prince versus Carew case, 
and aligned itself with what the district court did there and reversed our decision and said Warhol infringed. Didn't consider our expert opinions. Uh, in fact, said that we didn't have any. It overlooked those in the record. And so now we've got a, a decision coming from the US Supreme Court. It's gonna be argued this month. And they are going to hopefully clarify this area of law once and for all. Interestingly, I've taught a few classes uh, related to these issues. And if you go back to the 1980s, there's a work by Richard Serra called The Tilted Art. Uh, and the short story is it was put in the Federal Plaza downtown New York City. And it's a big steel wall that's consistent with Serra's style. And I've asked students, is this artwork or not? And half the class will say, not artwork at all. It's a big, ugly steel wall. And half of them will say, absolutely, it's art by one of the most famous artists and significant artists of our generation. And then for the students who say it is art, I ask them why. And all of them have a completely different reason. And all of them have a different reason as to what the art means than Richard Serra has given himself. And if you go back to the 1980s, there was a huge dispute publicly over this very same issue. People said, take this work out of the Federal Plaza. It's blocking my view. It's a horrible eyesight. And some people said it's magnificent, one of the greatest works I've seen. And so we've had these disputes about what is art? What does art mean if we think it's art for decades? And the Supreme Court case in Warhol, in my view, is sort of a culmination of our inability collectively to land on standards that govern how we decide what art is, what it means, who should be deciding that in a litigation? Is it the judge? Is it the jury? And so I'm hoping that the Supreme Court doesn't leave us with the same uncertainty that we've had since the 80s when the Sarah dispute played out in public. Thinking of uh, the nine justices telling us what art is, I'm not sure. That's the audience I'd really go to if I wanted a definitive answer to that question, which I think is actually essentially impossible to answer. I mean, what, what if you could frame the question in a sentence or two that this case presents for the, for the United States Supreme Court, how would you frame that question? The question is, when evaluating two artworks in a copyright infringement case like this one, what weight do we place on the meaning, the message, the visual transformation of the work when deciding whether the second work infringes the first? Who do we look to to resolve that decision? What weight does the market have on assessing whether a work is infringing or not? If an artist transforms a work visually, and in the meaning and message, but sells in a similar market? Does transformation win the day? So it's much more than just transformation, degree of transformation. It, there's there's a lot of else that's implicit in that in that case. Absolutely. And when you when you think about transformation, do you care what the artist says? You know, some artists, once once they create work and, and release it into the world, will say, it's for you to determine what you think it is. I'm going to tell you how to look at it. Mark Rothko sort of famously said, 
I'm not going to tell you how to feel my paintings or experience my paintings, what you read into them, that's on you. But what I think you ought to do is you ought to get so close to the painting that your nose is almost touching it. And you need to stand there and you need to absorb it. And then what you determine, what you decipher from that experience, that meaning, that message, that's yours. So we've got all these different artists who have different expectations for how their art will be experienced and what they ought to be saying. And, and the question, one question legally is, do we take that into account? Yeah. Well, I mean, the question of whether you should take into account the artist's intentions is one that comes up in every form of art, including literature. The famous British critic, uh, I think F.R. Levis, who's of the view that, you know, what the author or the poet intended is utterly irrelevant. You read the work. It is what it is. And, and, and that is, you know, I think, a plausible position to take. You can say, uh, I just want to experience this on my own. And, and I want to adopt the, the book in my own life and think about the context in which the lessons apply to me. I don't care to the extent they don't. But at the same time, it depends on what the endeavor is. If I want to understand an artist, I want to understand why that artist created something and learn more about how the artist connected his, her, their experience to the art and think about the creative process then I do care what the artist thinks. Why, why do you think the Supreme Court took this case? You know, in a lot of cases, there are what are called circuit splits, the, the differences of opinion on an issue between the different federal courts of appeals and the court thinks it's important to have some uniformity, some, uh, some consistency in federal law. So that's often an explanation for why a particular case is taken. Is there a circuit split here or do you think there's some other reason the court took this case? There's division across the country, just in, in a nutshell. If you look at the Seventh Circuit's decision in a case called Keenitz, Judge Estabrook, esteemed federal judge, incredibly smart, wrote a decision where a photographer took a picture of a political figure. A, an artist took that photograph and screened it on a T-shirt in a style that was similar to Warhol, high contrast, you know, exotic colors, and, and sold the T-shirt. There's a lawsuit against the artist, photographer sued, and said, you based your art on my picture. Very similar to what we've got here. Judge Esterbrook said the art itself changed the copyrightable elements of the photograph, the lighting, the shading, all the elements I alluded to before, they're all gone. And what you have is the outline of this individual's head and a photographer doesn't own the outline of someone's face and therefore no infringement. Here, we have a picture of someone where Warhol changed everything other than the outline of Prince's face. And in fact, in the deposition, the photographer, when I asked her, what is it that Warhol copied in his ultimate work? She told me he copied the outline of Prince's head. I said, anything else? And she said, no, the outline of Prince's head. That's exactly what the Seventh Circuit said was not protectable and therefore ruled against the photographer. The district court here followed that line of reasoning from the Seventh Circuit. The Second Circuit threw it out the window. The Second Circuit in the Prince Carew case reached the same conclusion as our district court. Our di the district court in the Prince Carew case reached a similar conclusion to the Second Circuit in Warhol. 
The Ninth Circuit has said things in a case involving Green Day that support our district court ruling. The California Supreme Court has said Andy Warhol is an iconic example of someone who transforms celebrity photographs for to provide messaging about celebrity culture and advertising. You look across the country and everyone has a different view, a conflicting view about art, its meaning, and you can take these decisions and line up multiple different divisions of very, very smart people. Our Second Circuit panel was composed of incredibly smart and experienced judges, and they just reached the opposite conclusion compared to a different panel of incredibly smart and experienced judges. This is exactly what the Supreme Court is for. Right. I know we we could talk for a long time about intellectual property issues as they surface in the world of art disputes, but let's turn and talk about relationships between collectors, dealers, gallerists, art advisors. We read a lot in the news about disputes that arise in the context of these relationships. A lot of the times collectors are extremely successful people or very wealthy people at least they have to be given the the prices for some of these great works of contemporary art which have become so valuable and you see disputes between collectors galleries and then art advisors uh, who are advising the collectors what are sort of the stress points in these kinds of relationships what sorts of claims have you seen arising in these circumstances so if you go right to the basics, you've got an art gallery that's selling an artwork to a buyer. It's supposed to be an arm's length deal. There's an invoice. The invoice has the work, the price, the representations and warranties. You know, it's authentic. The provenance is accurately stated and it's done. You know, no different from a car dealership selling a car, a one seller selling a house to another. It's supposed to be arm's length. You do, you're a buyer, you do your diligence. You don't trust what's being represented to you. Ultimately, you sign the deal, not relying on the expertise of the other side. You know they want to sell it to you for the highest price. You want to pay the lowest. Your interests are not aligned. That's normally what we think of when we think of an art transaction. But those lines have been blurred because collectors more and more have started to look to art dealers and advisors for advice about pricing, about desirability. Has this painting been shopped around the market before? If it has a lot, I don't want it because it's less desirable if people are trying to offload it across the country or the world. Is this within the artist's work, one of the best works, or should I be looking at a different work within the artist's overall body of creations? And so they're relying on advisors and dealers for this kind of specialized, trusted advisor type advice. At the end, when the transaction happened, many collectors' views of that transaction are colored by that relationship. They think they trust their dealer. They've created a relationship of trust with that dealer. They've relied on the advice from the dealer. And therefore, if there turn out to be disputes about pricing, about whether the work was shopped around before, about the desirability of the work, all of those issues, if they come up in disputes, the art advisor or the dealer can and e can't easily say arm's length deal, no fiduciary obligations. 
And so they're creating this sort of expanded relationship in these transactions that I think they aren't looking out for and protecting themselves against. Um, that's that's kind of, if I'm a dealer, uh, that's kind of a scary territory to be in because obviously it's, I'm interested, I'm interested in selling. That's why I have a gallery. Uh, I would like the buyer to trust me. I presumably know the artist and believe in the artist's work. I want to see turnover. I'm perfectly open to giving advice. And you sort of pretty quickly start walking a slippery slope about being in a position where you're a trusted advisor. If there's a dispute, the buyer's going to say, yeah, it was a trusted, i.e. fiduciary relationship. And you weren't looking out for me. And, and that is what I've started to see happen. And if you go back 20 years, there's some precedent for this. When investment banks were doing deals uh, back in the early 2000s, late 90s, they were on the one hand acting as an arm's length party, whether it was you know, funding a merger, a leverage buyout, they were acting as an arm's length party with a contract that stated they're operating at arm's length, that the counterparty is doing all of its diligence, not relying on the bank, et cetera. But at the same time, it was incredibly competitive to get this business. And so banks had a whole group of what they've called sort of relationship people who go out, make clients feel comfortable, make them feel like the bank is acting in their interest, try to expand the scope of the relationship. And ultimately, when some of these deals went sideways, some major iBanks got sued. And their response was, the terms of our deal are in the contract. And the rejoinder was, not so fast. I've had so many conversations, I can't even begin to count with your relationship people who assured me of X, Y, and Z. And I trusted them and relied on them. And you expanded the scope of your contractual relationship to include duties, fiduciary duties, based on those discussions and interactions. And courts recognize that. And so this is territory we've seen before in a different business. And what dealers and advisors really need to be mindful about is not walking down the same path and exposing themselves in the way that the banks did. I mean, can they protect themselves adequately with uh, an agreement with the collector? They can. Uh, if they have provisions in an agreement that say, you understand we've had conversations about pricing, about the artist's works, about the desirability of the work, and list the sorts of things that they have been talking about and say, you, you acknowledge and agree that this was given in the context of an arm's length transaction. You're doing your own diligence, not relying on this information. You're relying on your own advisors and trusted advice and good judgment as to the work, that kind of language, then they can protect themselves. The, the issue is the slippery slope, uh, the balancing act that dealers and advisors play. On the one hand, they wanna be trusted. They wanna give this advice. They wanna help people enjoy the buying process and build great collections. At the same time, they don't wanna be held responsible if the collector's unhappy in the end with how the process played out. Well, Luke, this has been really interesting. We haven't begun to touch, I know, on other important emerging areas like NFTs and, uh, online viewing rooms, which emerged, emerged during the pandemic and uh, cyber squatting. And I know that there were during COVID as well, there were 
whole issues of force majeure and performance. There's a lot of other things we can talk about. Maybe we could, this has been so interesting. Maybe we can take this up on a, another session in the future. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, John. It's, uh, it's a great area of law. There's so many topics to talk about, but these are some of the interesting ones. So it's, it's great to chat with you. You've been listening to Law Disrupted with me, John Quinn. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, lawdisrupted.fm. If you enjoyed the show, please share a link on social media and follow at JBQ Law or at Quinn Emanuel. Thank you for tuning in. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com. Thank you.